I'm excited to be here with you guys. Love this church. Love you guys. So, um, interesting text this morning. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. We're in Mark chapter 6. And it's just this interesting um, placement of the story of John the Baptist. If you were here last week, we were in Mark 6, verses 1 through 13. And if you remember, in, in Mark 6, verses 1 through, uh, I think it was verses 1 through 6, uh, Jesus comes back to Nazareth. And he's not welcomed in his hometown. And then in verses 7 through 13, uh, Mark shows that Jesus sends out the disciples in pairs, right? He sends them out with authority and with one another. So that's where it ends in Mark 6, verse 13. And then in Mark 6, verse 30, which we're going to cover this morning, that's the last three verses, 30, 31, 32. So Jesus sends them out in in verse 13, and they come back in in verse 30. But in between, there's the story of John the Baptist. And you kind of like go, what? Like he sends them out and they come back in verse 30 and report all the things that uh, they did and all the things that they said. But then we throw this John the Baptist story right in the middle of all these things that Jesus was doing. Since Mark chapter 1, he comes, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing, he's doing miracles, he's recruiting disciples, he's training them, he sends them out. They come back in verse 30. But between that, verses 14... Uh, through 29, we have this just story of John the Baptist. So that's that's odd. That's okay. Um, I said in the first uh, services last night and this morning, um, I don't know where, I, I must have made this up over the years, but I used to always say that, you know, nothing good comes without a price, right? So good things, valuable things usually have a price. And the more valuable, or the more good something is, the higher price um, one has to pay. And there's nothing more valuable than our salvation and, and the price that Christ paid for us is the steep, uh, steepest price anybody could have ever paid. Um, and so with that, um, the story doesn't end there. We become followers of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he calls us to a lot of the same kind of stuff that he uh, went through and that he led by example. And and so this story just has a, there's just some dark, sinister uh, elements to this whole story of John the Baptist and being beheaded. I hope that doesn't await any of us. But you know that that still happens, right? People are still losing their life in brutal ways uh, because of their followership of Jesus Christ. So um, I, I, I want on some level to not um, be shy about what the Lord has prepared. So can I just receive your permission to just Speak it like it is, right? What I I see in this text, because it's just kind of a, it's just interesting. It's interesting. Um, Is that okay? I have your permission to do that? That would really help. Thank you very, very much. So let's read Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 32. And this interesting interjection of John the Baptist in this chunk of Scripture in the book of Mark. So Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. And King Herod heard of it. Well, heard of what? For his, Jesus. He heard of Jesus. He heard of what Jesus was doing. And he heard of his his followers, because he's now sending his followers, his disciples. So King Herod heard of it, for his name, Jesus' name, had become well known. And people were saying this about Jesus. They were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him, in Jesus. But others were saying he's Elijah. And others were saying he's a prophet, like a prophet from of old. 
And when Herod heard it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Hmm. Verse 17. So that's the first stanza. Verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, his wife. The wife happened to be the wife of his brother Philip because he had taken Philip's wife and married her. Interesting. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Which is true. Herodias had a grudge. She had it out for him and wanted to put him to death but could not do so. Why? Herod was afraid of John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. And when he would hear him, he was very perplexed, but enjoyed listening to him nonetheless. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for all of his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mom, What shall I ask for? And of course she said, The head of John the Baptist. And so immediately she came in a hurry to the king, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter, no less. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Verse 27, Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl, of course, gave it to her mom. When the disciples, or when John the Baptist's disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. And then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, verse 30, the the apostles come back and gather with Jesus and report to him all that they had taught and all that they had done. And he says, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest. But there were many people coming and going and they didn't even have time to eat. And they went away in a boat to a secluded place. Interesting, right? So in verse 13 of Mark 6, Jesus sends them out in pairs. And in verse 30, they come back and then we get this bizarre story of John the Baptist just plopped right in the middle of this thing. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the work that you have done and will continue to do in our lives and in the life of this church. Thankful for your word that we can engage it honestly and truthfully and boldly. We pray, Lord, as we do every Sunday, that you would have your way with us individually and collectively as a church body. We love you. Thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. So there's three stanzas that we just read, and, and the outline is, is this. The first three verses um, I'm calling the reminder, where uh, Jesus and, and his disciples remind Herod of John the Baptist. And so that's the reminder, verses 14, 15, and 16. And then in 17 through 29, I'm calling that the relationship, where we delve into the relationship that John the Baptist and Herod uh, had. And then, seemingly, again, kind of like it just out of nowhere, verses 30, 31, and 32, the review that Jesus has with the disciples that he had just sent a few verses earlier um, in Mark chapter 6. So, let's, with that, let's, uh, let's let her rip. So, the reminder. Let's reread verses 14, 15, and 16. 
King Herod heard of Jesus. His name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That's why these crazy miraculous powers are working in him. Verse 15, others were saying he's Elijah. And even others were saying a prophet. But Herod heard of it, or heard of him, and kept saying to himself, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. There's two main characters in our story this morning. Clearly John the Baptist is one of them, and clearly Herod is the other. And the first thing, in, 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 as I wrestled with this text, that jumped out at me is this. Jesus is doing his thing, and it reminds Herod of who? John the Baptist. I don't know why that caught me funny. Instead of, sometimes we do things and we say, oh, you remind me of Jesus. Jesus does some stuff, and it reminds Herod of John the Baptist. What a great testimony. Do you get where I'm going with that? Right? If people, as they learn about Jesus, would they say, oh, gosh, that reminds me of Dave. Like, what a compliment, right? If somebody that you uh, uh, touched base with here and there began to learn and hear about Jesus and said, wow, this Jesus guy reminds me a lot of John, reminds me a lot of Teresa. Would that be said of us? Would that be said of us? If, if, if people begin to engage Jesus, begin to engage God for who he is and sent his son, would they look at Jesus and learn about Jesus and say, wow, that reminds me of Morris. That's what I just thought was so intriguing to me. Do we conduct our lives in such a way that when others get a better and clearer picture of Jesus, that they would actually think of us? How does Jesus remind people of you? You get what I'm, get what I'm asking? What character traits of Jesus are currently under construction in your life? What character traits of Jesus are currently under construction in your life? Shouldn't that be happening? He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus? What character traits is the Lord needing to, wanting to, or currently developing in your life right now? A good place to start? Look at Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. We know that, right? That's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think that's the nine of them, right? Where we can say, which one of those things does God really need to work on in my life? Hopefully, we all have something that's under construction in our life that's making us look more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. The second thing that jumped out at me is this. In many ways, this story of Herod and John the Baptist represents the process and the struggle that many people will go through as they wrestle with who Jesus is. Who is this guy? That's what Herod's trying to figure out. Who is this guy? People were saying in those first three verses, four occasions that people were saying, others were saying, others were saying, and John uh, and Herod kept saying. Earlier this week, Bill Kahn, raise your hand. Uh, Bill, just up. Yeah, I'm not going to put you on the spot too much. Not at all. Bill and I had lunch this week, and we were talking about this very thing about about people hearing about Jesus. I'd ask Bill how he came to faith, right? Like, what's your story? And just all the things he heard about Jesus, and he was wrestling with Jesus, much like Herod here, right? And it takes us some time to figure all that out before we really come alongside Jesus, and that's okay. 
That might be part of our journey right now where we're just here and we're trying to put all the puzzle pieces together and then somehow it just kind of starts to click for us. And so we don't lose hope when we're on this side of it as we share the gospel and as we're, as a church, we're letting people know about Jesus and so they're going to hear and they're going to see and they're going to hear more and other people are going to say this and we're forming. God knows how to form that in us. I think that's very important. I wonder often, I wonder what people are saying about Jesus, whether with their mouth or in their heart. I hope people are wrestling with Jesus. I hope they're saying something about Jesus. I hope that we as a church give people something to talk about, about Jesus. Should be why we're here, right? Why is John the Baptist's story plopped right here in our text? We were already introduced to John the Baptist in chapter 1, right? Verses 1 through 8, where John was preparing away, repent, and he was baptizing people and saying, one greater than I is coming. So we already get John the Baptist in chapter 1, and seemingly he's forgotten about until now. There's only two times in the book of Mark, and Mark has 16 chapters, only twice in the gospel of Mark where it's not about Jesus. And in both cases, it's about John the Baptist. Both foreshadow Jesus. They're a precursor to Jesus. They point to Jesus in both instances. In chapter 1, John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus' message and Jesus' ministry. And here in chapter 6, he's the forerunner of Jesus' what? Huh? Death. Of his death. A brutal, unfair death. The parallels between the death of Jesus and the death of John are astounding. I won't get into all of them. But both are executed by political tyrants who (laughs) fear and respect them, Jesus and John. They fear and respect these, these political tyrants, fear and respect them, and they struggle and they vacillate in what to do with them, but they ultimately give in to social pressure. Perhaps we do the same thing. Perhaps we do the same thing, whether we're a believer or not a believer yet. We have a lot of fear and a lot of respect for our Lord, but on some level, we give in to social pressure, we give in to the pressure of the world, we give in to the pressure of whatever that is that contradicts the fear and the respect that we have for our Lord. And on some level, on some level, understand me, we kill Jesus in that process in our own lives. We just shut that valve off, right? We're in Scripture. We're in church. We're hearing the Word. We're worshiping. We're doing a lot of the right things. We have a healthy fear and respect for our Lord. But we give in to something. And on some level, we kill that aspect of Jesus in our lives. In John's case... John the Baptist's case, Herod, and Antipas is his name, he, uh, he gives in to his wife, Herodias. So Herod gives in to Herodias. In Jesus' case, Pilate gives in to the mob. And it's kind of like that. We usually give in for a person or some, some kind of a cultural pressure or group of people instead of giving in to the Lord. Both John the Baptist and Jesus die silently. And they both die as righteous and innocent victims. It's a tragic story. 
Look at Isaiah 53. We're only going to read the first couple of verses, uh, 6 and 7. Isaiah 53, 6 and 7. If you want, I would encourage you to read to 12 on your own, but we're just going to read 6 and 7 this morning. All of us, all of us, all of us, all means all, that's all, all means. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, upon Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. And so we see that modeled in John and we see it modeled, obviously, in Jesus' life as well. John the Baptist did indeed prepare the way for the Messiah. John the Baptist did indeed prepare the way for the Messiah. How? Two ways. He did it in word and in deed. John prepared the way for Jesus the Messiah in other people's lives, both in word and in deed. Sometimes it's hard to do it just in word. That takes a lot of work to learn God's word, to know the truth of Scripture. But then to do it in deed is where we have to finalize that process. To lead people to our Messiah in word and in deed. And perhaps, it, you know... <laughs> Maybe this is just one of the ways indeed that we do it, right? You, you do something for VBS or whatever that looks like, right? I don't like to tell people what to do with their time, but you get my point. To point people, we have a responsibility to point people to the Messiah in word and in deed. Amen? So the question then becomes, what more? Because we, we have a pretty incredible church. So many people do so much in this church, and so I always want to commend you for that. But, my, but at the same time, we must always ask the question, what more would the Lord have you to do? What more would the Lord have for you to say in pointing people to the Messiah? We should always ask that question, right? What more should I do, Lord? What more should I say? John the Baptist also exemplifies the consequences. This is another reason why it's put in there, right? Because Jesus just sent out his disciples, and they're coming back with their first report. And here we have the story. So the story of John the Baptist exemplifies the consequences of following Jesus in a world filled with corruption. Now that lets the reader know, yep, the disciples are being sent. Let me kind of tell you about how some things might go. <laughs> right? Mark sandwiches this brutal account of John the Baptist between the sending of the twelve and their return in verse 30 in order to impress upon his readers the cost of discipleship. One of the things that's one of Mark's primary points in his gospel is to make us aware of the cost of discipleship because things of great value have a great cost, don't they? Yes, like John, we are to preach and spread the gospel and point people to Jesus, our Messiah. And yes, like John, life can be challenging because of it. So Mark re-enters the person of John the Baptist in his text in Mark chapter 6 as a preview of the unjust suffering and hardship that awaits Jesus. As a preview of the unjust suffering and hardship that awaits the twelve. And perhaps as a preview through the story of Herod of how people will wrestle with the gospel message. Every time I read this story about Herod, there's parts where I think, okay, this time Herod's going to get it. 
This time Herod, because he enjoyed listening to John, he protected John. There were things about his relationship with John that were really wonderful. And I read, I think, Herod, please this time say yes. Don't behead him. And so I think that this preview this, through the story of Herod represents how people wrestle with the gospel message even when they're in these weird places that Herod is in. Here's what's also interesting to me. Let's take a look at, uh, at what a lack of faith can do even when there's evidence otherwise. What a lack of faith, or let's just call it disbelief, oh no, let's just call it disobedience, right? Just willful disobedience. What that will do even in the midst of evidence. Pete, Jesus is here. If, there, if we know anything about John the Baptist, he was always pointing people to Jesus, right? That's all John did. Point, point, point to Jesus. Jesus is now here in, in flesh and blood. That's a fact. People were saying, oh, it's John the Baptist risen. Huh? Herod was saying, oh, it's John the Baptist risen. Huh? Like, it, define evidence. They're making up this somebody's risen stuff, Right? Here Jesus is, flesh and blood, the truth, he's present, and Herod can't or won't see it. Instead, <laughs> somehow it makes more sense to Herod that someone has come back from the dead, although there appears to be no evidence up to this point in the history of mankind that this has ever happened before. But Herod somehow thinks it's neither impossible nor improbable. You get where I'm going with this, right? It's mind-boggling. That those who most willfully disbelieve the truth, who most willfully disobey, allow themselves to so easily and so readily believe nonsense, to believe other things that have little or no evidence. If you've ever had the chance to share the gospel with people, the stuff that comes out of their mouth is awesome. It's fascinating to me. I've got to be careful. You, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like, are you kidding me? And you can't do that, right? But the stuff that we, when we are entrenched in willful disobedience, the stuff that we make up, and that's what Herod's doing. It's like, Herod, really? <laughs> oh, it's fascinating. But we have to be careful. We can convince ourselves with some crazy beliefs in our quest or in our stance for disobedience because even though we're followers of Christ, we're still prone to sin, we're still prone to disobedience. And we make up this crazy stuff in our lives, in our minds, in order to justify our disobedience. And so we look at Herod and we think, oh, he's crazy, of course it's Jesus. We do the same thing when we're in a place of willful disobedience. We don't fix the things that need to be fixed. We would just rather live and be entrenched in our willful disobedience. It's hilarious to me. Lastly, I like this quote by Matthew Henry. Clearly in our context, in our text, Herod is struggling with a guilty conscience, right? So Matthew Henry says this, a guilty, a guilty conscience needs no accuser or tormentor but itself. Those who would keep an undisturbed peace must keep an undefiled conscience. We have to be so careful the things that we allow ourselves to believe when we stray from God's truth and we make up our own truth so that we can continue to live in willful disobedience. But if we want an undefiled or undisturbed peace, we must have an undefiled conscience. Herod's terror and guilt made him imagine that Christ was John the Baptist risen. And I love what Acts 24:16 says, we should be on a quest 
just like was written here in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Second stanza, the relationships. Let's look at the relationship between John and Herod starting in verse 17. This is all one thought. Uh, I don't know if you, some of your Bibles divvy it up, but it really should. This is all from verses 17 through 29. It's just all one long, continuous sentence, if you will. So Herod sent had so so right so uh, they're telling the backstory. Herod had John arrested. He was in prison because of his wife, who he stole from his brother. John had said, "Naughty, naughty! It's not lawful for you to." take your brother's wife, and Herodias takes issue with John, even though he was absolutely right, and so she has a grudge against him and wants to put him to death, but he, she could not do so. Why? Verse 20, Herod was afraid of John. He knew that he was a righteous and holy man, which is so interesting, and he kept him safe. This is where I always have hope for Herod, right? It's like, oh, Herod, he gets it. And when he heard him, he was perplexed, but he enjoyed listening to him. This is so true of so many of us. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and all these important people. And the daughter came and she danced and he was pleased. And he says, ask whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. Verse 24. And so she went out to her mother. What do I do? Ask for John's head. And so she came in a hurry and said exactly that. Give me his head on a platter. Verse 26. And the king was sorry. I believe he was sorry. Because of his oath and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Not unable. He was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner, commanded his head to be brought back, and that's exactly what happened. Verse 28. Here comes his head on a platter, gives it to the girl, she gives it to Herodias, her mom. And when John's disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Is that a tragic story? It's a horrible, horribly tragic story. Who is King Herod? Well, look at Luke 3, verse 1. Just one verse. Because Herod is just actually a title. And so his dad was Herod the Great. And then there was Herod uh, Antipas, who we're talking about now. Then there was Herod Philip and Herod Lysanias. I think that's in Luke 3. He's actually not a king. Look at Luke 3, 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, that's who we're talking about, and his brother, Herod Philip, was tetrarch of these places, and his other brother, Herod Lysanias, was tetrarch in Abilene. So there's three Herods. We just refer to this one as Herod because we don't know much about the other two. And so what's a tetrarch? They were tetrarchs. They weren't actually kings. A tetrarch is a Roman official over an area or over a province who are not deemed important enough to be designated as a king. Only Jewish subjects referred to them as kings, which is why Mark refers to him as King Herod. Okay? So what was the issue that John the Baptist had with Herod? Well, it was the marriage of Herod Antipas with Herodias. It was in violation of the Mosaic Law. It forbade marriage to a brother's wife, unless or except in order to raise children for a deceased childless brother. Philip is alive, oops, and he has a daughter, the one that just danced before Herod Antipas. So he's clearly not in proper behavior from the Mosaic Law, right? So that's in Leviticus 18 and 20 and Deuteronomy 25 if you want. We can clearly see the great value in Mark chapter 6 
the great value and the great respect that Herod has for John the Baptist. It's clear. Look at verse 20. It's one of my favorite verses in this context. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he, not suspecting, not thinking, knowing that he was a righteous, uh, he was righteous and holy, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was perplexed, I can imagine. But he used to enjoy listening to him. Many of us, many persons we know, can make a lot of progress toward the grace and toward the glory of our Lord and yet come short. And that's what happened with Herod. He was making some progress towards God's glory and towards God's grace, but he fell painfully short. And when we do, we perish eternally because of it. And we need to be careful that we're not those people, not only in our salvation, but also in our sanctification, the process of maturing, the process of becoming righteous, that we don't be pleased just with pursuing grace and glory, but that we actually don't come short of it in our sanctification process. Herod feared John and kept John safe. He knew John to be righteous and to be holy. And that reveals to us through Herod that even um, those that have little uh, faith or, uh, or, or little or no justice or holiness in themselves, right? he sees justice and he sees holiness in John the Baptist, but he has no, no justice or holiness in himself but he's still able to discern it in somebody else. Does that make sense? So we, 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 we will engage. I've engaged people like that. I'm thankful for that, that even people who have no sense of justice, no sense of righteousness, they can recognize it in us. And it moves them. It disturbs them. Like Herod, it will keep them perplexed. If somebody, when I get a chance to share Christ with them, if they don't give their life to Christ, no problem. I hope they're disturbed, though. Shouldn't they be? Shouldn't they be? Herod was perplexed. It's perfect. I'm glad he was perplexed. He needed to be perplexed. The tragedy is that while Herod saw the justice in in John and saw the righteousness in John, and he respected it and he feared it, he chose to reject it. We often do the same thing. We see it, we respect it, we choose to reject it. Here's what's cool. John the Baptist shows his, listen to this, he shows his faithfulness to Herod. Huh? He shows his faithfulness to Herod in telling him the truth. Telling him of his faults. That's tough. And that becomes the rub. How then do we point people to the Messiah? How do we point people to the truth? In a way that they'll receive it, not be offended. Are we willing to be faithful to that task as a church? It's so tricky. And so we have to constantly be in His Word and constantly be on our knees and constantly be relying on the Holy Spirit so that we can find ways in our faithfulness to our Lord and our faithfulness to people by being able to tell them and point out their faults, if you will, or the fact that they are sinners and in desperate need of a Savior. Though Herod was a king, John would not spare him. Herod shouldn't be spared, right? He needs to know the truth like anybody else. Being faithful to our Lord and to others is risky business, isn't it? It's risky business. Proverbs 27, 6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. This takes a lot of wisdom. This is out of Proverbs, one of our wisdom books. Proverbs 28, 23, He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. 
It's tricky business to know how to do that. We really need to lean on the Lord if we're going to be faithful to people and revealing to them their need for a Savior, their need for a Messiah, the need for their sins to be forgiven. Though it was indeed dangerous to offend Herod and Herodias, John was willing to endure the hazard and the risk. He was willing to endure the hazard and the risk rather than be wanting, rather than be lacking, rather than be neglecting in his duty. That was John's duty as a man of God. He was willing to endure the hazard and the risk rather than be found wanting, rather than to be found lacking, rather than to be found neglecting in his duty. It's a powerful challenge for us. From our text, every indication is that Herod respected John the Baptist. And it says, as we already read, that he enjoyed his teaching. He feared him. He was just and holy. But not so much once it came close to addressing his sin. You notice that? Aren't we the same way? We are often the same way. I want to hear from John. I like hearing John. I'm going to protect John. He's righteous and holy. Oh, you want to get into my sin? Back off. Right? We love all that stuff we like to hear. And it's, it's really interesting. But we get entrenched in stuff in our lives. And that's when it's like, yeah, off limits. You can have everything, but you can't have it. You can have anything, but you can't have everything. We're off in the same way. Verse 26, my little thought about two wrongs don't make a right. Verse 26, two wrongs don't make a right. Although the king was very sorry about having to behead John the Baptist, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling, unwilling, not unable, but unwilling to refuse her. So I already made one mistake, and he's going to compound it by making another one. Right? He made a foolish oath, and now he's too embarrassed or prideful to back out of it. Oaths, like they should, imposed a great sense of obligation amongst people in ancient Israel. Breaking an oath was virtually unthinkable, as it should be, if we make the right kind of oaths. Therefore, they were not to be made lightly or flippantly like Herod did just here. Even a rash oath was binding and required confession of sin. So there was an out. It required a confession of sin and sacrificial compensation if you broke an oath. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 5. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Being careful with the oaths that we make, and if we do, being willing to repent from them, because two wrongs will never make a right. Leviticus 5, starting at verse 4. I just love this. If, you know, and this is written because we do it, right? If, it's, if we'd never do it, it wouldn't be here. Or if a person, it should say, or when a person swears thoughtlessly, yeah, I've been there, with his lips to do evil or even to do good, in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him because he wasn't thinking, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, now I get it, I shouldn't have said that. And then he comes to know of it, he will be guilty in one of these. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these, right? Don't, don't, not, not, two wrongs don't make a right, right? Then what, ha- what shall he do? He shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, as a sin offering. 
so the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for the sin. Two wrongs don't make a right. If we let something slip, if we're flipping in our oaths, if we're trying to impress somebody what we say, man, don't make it worse. Don't compound it. Repent. Confess. Move on. Two wrongs don't make a right. And lastly, these last few verses of Mark chapter 6, the, the, the review of their work that he sent them out to do. Mark 6, verses 30 through 31. The apostles gather, they come back, right? And they gather with Jesus. They report to him all that they had both done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest. And there were many people coming and going. They didn't even have time to eat. And they went away to a secluded place. So what do they do? They come back from their first trip in pairs. And they gather themselves around Jesus. They compare notes, if you will. They give an account. They're being held accountable for what they're doing for Jesus. They give an account of what they had done according to how he commissioned them. And he's also arguably preparing them for what's next. We should always be thinking, what's next? Great, I'm growing. What's next? Great, we did this as a church. What's next? Okay, great, we got through this VBS. What's next? Okay, great. And that can be exhausting, for sure. But that's what Jesus modeled. They told him all the things, both what they had done and what they had taught. What they had done and what they had taught. Jesus allows and encourages them to be open with him in this context to tell them all the things that happened, their successes, their failures. Hopefully we can do the same thing where we have these moments with Jesus where we just tell him our successes and our failures. Are we not held to the same standard that we read in these few little verses? Look at it this way. It would be like me saying, okay, church, here's kind of the deal because I think it's modeled in Scripture. Starting tomorrow, um, we're going to send you out in pairs and you're all going to be given a, a task to do for the church. And then every month, you know, come back in a month and we're going to get in little small groups and we're going to talk about all the things you said, taught, and all the things that you did. How would that, how would that go over? Interesting, huh? Interesting. That's what's being modeled in these little hidden verses here at the end of chapter 6. That they gather with Jesus. And they're talking about what they did, what they didn't do, what they said, what they taught, the things that they had done. And our Lord, being as tender as He is, we see the tender care of Christ in verse 31 when He says, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. We need to rest as well. That's just as important. Working for Him is just as important as resting for Him as well. Because it's hard work. The things that He calls us to do is not, is, are not simple. And so we, we see the kindness and compassion that Christ has for us, His workers. The most active servants of Christ cannot always be going about their business. Sometimes we need to rest. But what I find fascinating as we wrap this up is that the model here in these verses seems to be this. This is what the model seems to be. Does Jesus want us to work for him? We, we kind of, we, like, I think we're beating this dead horse a little bit in, Mark, in, in, in the book of Mark so far, right? Would you agree Jesus wants us to do stuff for him? He wants us to help advance his kingdom? Yes? Would you also recognize that he wants to give us rest as well? Right? We're to have both. We're to do and we're to rest in him. We're to do and we're to rest in him. And so I think that's the model here in this, in this context. So listen to this. Is as we allow, like the disciples, as we allow the Lord to work in us, that's what they did. They allowed the Lord to work in them and through them. 
and advance His purposes and point people to the Messiah, then the Lord allows them to rest in Him. Make sense? Right? So He works in us, and then they, we, rest in Him with a kind of rest that we won't experience anywhere outside of Him. We try to find rest in a lot of places, but the rest that Jesus has for us is like no other rest we'll ever experience, like no other peace we'll ever experience. But I think it goes hand in hand with doing for Him and resting with Him. Make sense? That's what seems to be modeled here. Look at Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. We know this verse. Jesus has come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. We have all been weary and heavy laden. Some of us might still be so today. He says, and I will give you rest. Take, aha, but see, here's the deal. Take my yoke upon you, right? The thing that we pull to do his work. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, I am humble, and you will find rest for your soul. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We are yoked or burdened by something. Something will yoke and burden us. All of us. And he says, try me. And you'll find rest for your soul. There's a rest that comes from Jesus that we won't find any other place. But there's work that goes along with it too. It's just fascinating to me. I think they go hand in hand. And then we see in verse 31 in the, in the, in the parentheses where it says there's many people coming and going. I'm like, what's that there for? I don't know. They're busy. Lots going on. But what I liked about it is that it just, it just it made me think of this place. And it made me think of where we're located. And, and so many people that see us, see our church from the Target parking lot. Right? And so people come and they go and they might try this church and that might lead them to another church. And I'm way, way, way okay with that. I so want to be about building God's big church, God's kingdom, and not just the Rock Community Church. So I, I hope that this place becomes a bustling place of activity where people come and they go and we, when, if we plant churches, that we bring some people in and we send out a group of people to go and plant churches that people would come in and we would send them out and they would come in and we would send them out. But we have to be prepared both to respond like they did and to rest like they did. There's a place for both of that. God wants us to respond but He's going to give us a rest like we've never experienced before when we respond properly. Let me close with this, and then we're going to do a song to close our time. One commentary says this, He called them to rest for a while. They must not expect to rest long, only to catch their breath and then get to work again. There is no remaining rest for the people of God until they come to heaven. Brian, why don't you work your way up? I'm going to pray for us. And when, I'm, uh, when Brian's done with our closing song, of course, our prayer team will be available to my left, your right. Have a great rest of the Sunday, and let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for John the Baptist and his life, and that we get to learn from him and from Herod. Lord, thank you for this church. Continue to mold us and shape us into the image of your son. May we work for you and find our rest in you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.